Something revolving Whatever may come The world keeps revolving They say the next big thing is here That the revolution's near But to me it seems quite clear That it's all just a little bit of history repeating Welcome, my friends, welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of western Japan on this 14th day of December, 2008. I'd like to welcome all of the listeners to the podcast and remind all of my listeners, as usual, to check out CorbettReport.com for past episodes of the podcast, as well as a documentation list sorted by time index, which lists links to all of the documents cited in today's episode. From there, you will also be able to find links to articles and interviews that we've conducted in the past, and videos that we've created on our YouTube channel, and a contact form where you can get in touch with me. Again, my apologies to all of those who have recently corresponded with me and are awaiting a reply, as once again I am still very busy behind the scenes working on the forthcoming documentary Al-Qaeda Doesn't Exist, which of course you can always find at alqaedadoesntexist.com, and there's a banner link to that from the front page of corbettreport.com. I'm pleased to say that there are mountains of incredibly important information that I'm trying to sift through and trying to present in the best way possible in this documentary, and it's an extremely slow process to put this information together into a very watchable format, and I'm really trying my best. But it is progressing slowly. So, of course, the aim is still to release the documentary by the end of this month. But if that is not possible, instead of sacrificing the quality of the overall product, I may simply start releasing the documentary segment by segment over the course of two or three weeks, starting at the end of this month. Again, please stay tuned to AlqaedaDoesn'tExist.com and this podcast for more information on this important forthcoming documentary as it becomes available. But without further ado, let's get to today's real news. Our first real news story today comes from the Financial Times, December 8th, 2008. And now for a world government. I have never believed that there is a secret United Nations plot to take over the U.S., 
I have never seen black helicopters hovering in the sky above Montana. But, for the first time in my life, I think the formation of some sort of world government is plausible. A world government would involve much more than cooperation between nations. It would be an entity with state-like characteristics, backed by a body of laws. The European Union has already set up a continental government for 27 countries, which could be a model. The EU has a supreme court, a currency, thousands of pages of law, a large civil service, and the ability to deploy military force. So could the European model go global? There are three reasons for thinking that it might. First, it is increasingly clear that the most difficult issues facing national governments are international in nature. There's global warming, a global financial crisis, and a global war on terror. Second, it could be done. The transport and communications revolutions have shrunk the world so that, as Geoffrey Blaney, an eminent Australian historian, has written, for the first time in human history, world government of some sort is now possible. Mr. Blaney foresees an attempt to form a world government at some point in the next two centuries, which is an unusually long time horizon for the average newspaper column. But the third point, a change in the political atmosphere suggests that global governance could come much sooner than that. The financial crisis and climate change are pushing national governments towards global solutions, even in countries such as China and the U.S. that are traditionally fierce guardians of national sovereignty. A taste of the ideas doing the rounds in Obama circles is offered by a recent report from the Managing Global Insecurity Project, whose small U.S. advisory group includes John Podesta, the man heading Mr. Obama's transition team, and Strobe Talbot, the president of the Brookings Institute, from which Ms. Rice has just emerged. The MGI report argues for the creation of a UN High Commissioner for Counter-Terrorist Activity, a legally binding climate change agreement negotiated under the auspices of the UN, and the creation of a 50,000-strong UN peacekeeping force. Once countries had pledged troops to this reserve army, the UN would have first call upon them. These are the kind of ideas that get people reaching for their rifles in America's talk radio heartland. Aware of the political sensitivity of its ideas, the MGI report opts for soothing language. It emphasizes the need for American leadership and uses the term responsible sovereignty when calling for international cooperation, rather than the more radical-sounding phrase favored in Europe, shared sovereignty. It also talks about global governance rather than world government. So, it seems, everything is in place. For the first time since Homo sapiens began to doodle on cave walls, there is an argument, an opportunity, and a means to make serious steps towards a world government. But let us not get carried away. While it seems feasible that some sort of world government might emerge over the next century, any push for global governance in the here and now will be a painful, slow process. There are good and bad reasons for this. The bad reason is a lack of will and determination on the part of national, political leaders who, while they might like to talk about a planet in peril, are ultimately still much more focused on their next election at home. But this problem also hints at a more welcome reason why making progress on global governments will be slow sledding. Even in the EU, the heartland of law-based international government, the idea remains unpopular. The EU has suffered a series of humiliating defeats in referendums when plans for ever closer union have been referred to the voters. In general, 
The union has progressed fastest when far-reaching deals have been agreed by technocrats and politicians and then pushed through without direct reference to the voters. International governance tends to be effective only when it is anti-democratic. Today's second news story comes from Infowars.net, December 12, 2008. Attorneys, Fort Dick's terror plot was planted and nurtured by FBI informants. FBI insiders concocted and encouraged farcical pizza delivery terror conspiracy. Lawyers in a case relating to a much-vaunted 2007 terror plot have concluded that FBI informants were the key figures behind the operation, and that the accused, six foreign-born Muslims, were merely bungling patsies. Defense attorneys have denied there was any plot, arguing two FBI informants concocted and encouraged the conspiracy because they were being paid and promised legal immigration status, reports the New Jersey Star-Ledger. The only terrorist conspiracy was one planted and nurtured by the informant, argued attorney Rocco Ciparoni as he highlighted exchanges between the informant, Mahmoud Omar, and defendant Mohammed Schnur in a conversation after the two men drove to the Fort Dix Army Base 25 miles east of Philadelphia last year. At the time, the incident was hyped by the mainstream corporate media as a major coup for federal authorities, as they announced that they had foiled a complex radical Islamist terrorist plot to attack Fort Dix and kill as many soldiers as possible at the heavily fortified army base. Five of the men who were arrested were born in Jordan, Turkey, and the former Yugoslavia. It soon became apparent, however, that none of them had any ties to international terrorism. One of the defendants is accused of giving the informant a map of the Fort Dix cantonment area, which he took from his father's pizzeria, which delivered food inside Fort Dix. The supposed plot involved getting into the military installation disguised as pizza delivery men with three AK-47 automatic assault rifles and four semi-automatic M-16 rifles, going up against hundreds of trained soldiers and shooting as many soldiers in Humvees as they could, then retreating without losses to fight again another day. Critics were quick to point out that the chances of this being in any way possible were somewhat slim. Indeed, even some of the suspects themselves indicated the idea constituted a waste of time and money. The FBI says it learned of the supposed plot when the suspects went to a Circuit City store and asked the clerk to transfer a jihad training video of themselves onto a DVD. The accused also reportedly asked a police officer where they could obtain more maps of the army base. Despite such bungling activity, the men were described by authorities as well-organized and nearly ready to strike. In addition, it later emerged that the extent of the suspect's supposed military-style training turned out to be trips to a firing range in the Poconos and playing paintball in the woods. Further reports quietly admitted there is little indication that they were devout or even practicing Muslims. By the end of the year, one of the informants, Omar, will have received nearly $240,000 for his role in the operation, $185,000 in payments, plus reimbursement for $25,000 in expenses and nearly $29,000 in rent. Sentencing is scheduled for Monday. Our final news story today comes from cbc.ca, 9th of December, 2008. 
chemicals feminizing male wildlife study worms. Chemicals used in common household products that leach into the environment are having a feminizing effect on male wildlife, warns a new study, which suggests potential harm to human males as well. The report found that chemicals such as pesticides and phthalates block the male hormone androgen, which results in changes to male sex organs. Phthalates are used in a number of plastic products, such as shower curtains, to make them more flexible. The findings were released Sunday by ChemTrust, an organization devoted to researching the effects of chemicals on both humans and animals. The effects of anti-androgen chemicals include undescended small or abnormal testicles, small penises, ambiguous genitals. The effects are seen across a wide array of wildlife, from otters and seals in the United Kingdom, to polar bears in the Arctic, to eland antelopes in Africa, the report said. As well in egg-laying species, including fish, amphibians, birds, and reptiles, males exposed to sex hormone-disrupting chemicals are producing an egg yolk protein normally made by females. The report underscores growing concerns among scientists and the general public over the potential health effects caused by the chemical bisphenol A, BPA. Numerous animal studies have shown that BPA mimics the effects of the hormone estrogen in the body. The chemical, found in a number of household products from plastic food containers and aluminum food cans to electronic equipment, is linked to health problems that range from reproductive difficulties to cancer and heart disease. The findings have led the Canadian government to declare BPA a dangerous substance and ban it from the manufacture of baby bottles. The report also adds to growing research that shows babies born to mothers who are exposed to phthalates while pregnant are born with genital defects that include having a urinary tract separate from the penis and small or undescended testicles. Welcome to episode 68 of the Corbett Report, Lessons from History. This week, I'd like to feature some extended audio excerpts from important historical speeches and speeches about historical moments in time that have relevance for our current juncture in history. For make no mistake, we are history's actors, and the future history of the world is being written today by us. It is our loss of understanding of the context of history, the flow and continuity of historical events, that render us powerless. It is this radical decontextualizing, this historical solipsism, which distract us from this fundamental and important truth. In order to try to recontextify ourselves and to inform ourselves of our place in the continuing flow of history, and in order to combat the ignorance warned about in Santayana's famous dictum, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it, today I'd like to offer some extremely important glimpses of history and how they relate to our current day and age. I'd like to start by playing an excerpt from a 2005 speech made by Professor Amory Starr, an activist, sociologist, and documentary filmmaker 
who has been active in the fight against corporate globalization since 2000 when she released her first book, Naming the Enemy, Anti-Corporate Movements Confront Globalization. This is a two-part speech which runs almost two hours in length, so of course I'll only play a short excerpt today. But I do suggest that my listeners check out the entire speech by finding the link from the documentation section of today's episode on CorbettReport.com. The speech goes through a vast swath of history relating to colonialism, both in its original form, as practiced by the Dutch, French, Spanish, Portuguese, and other European powers, but of course most famously by the British Empire, but also in its neo-colonial and post-colonial varieties, and all of the implications of that colonialism. The excerpt that I'd like to listen to today pertains to the IMF and the World Bank. Of course, listeners to The Corbett Report will already be familiar with these institutions and the part that they have played in the planned implosion of various economies in the Third World in order to render those Third World nations indebted and in service to the international investment banks. It is vitally important that we study and scrutinize the history of these organizations because the very same tactics that have been used to subjugate the third world countries are now being turned against the first world countries. The exact same things that we saw happen in country after country throughout the 80s and 90s is about to come home to the United States, the UK, Australia, Canada, Japan, all of the countries that we thought would be safe from such incredible implosions and bankruptcy. Keeping that in mind, I'd like listeners to pay close attention to this description of the IMF bailout, as Professor Starr terms it, as well as the implications of the structural adjustment policies, which the privately owned international investment banks are allowed to impose on these indebted third world countries after these countries have been bankrupted by reckless loaning policies. The direct historical link between what was happening in these countries and what is happening right now with the current bailout and credit crisis is apparent to all. So I urge my listeners to pay attention to this in the context of the third world countries that were being imploded in previous decades by these international investment bankers. Without further ado, let's take a listen to this excerpt from this very important speech by Professor Amory Starr. Modernization theory is enforced by the two most important financial institutions in the world, which are the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, and the World Bank. These two were created along with another institution that I'll be talking about later in 1944 ostensibly to regulate the economy after the war. The World Bank was to give large loans for infrastructure development, and the IMF was to give short-term loans in case of economic crisis. These days, their roles are far less distinct. A lot of people like to debate whether these institutions ever intended to do what they claim to do. I mean, they were actually not set up to do anything to the third world. They were set up to rebuild Europe after the war and to regulate the global economy in order to supposedly avoid, like, massive financial crises. 
some analysts believe that the economic model that these institutions work with has proven itself to not work. And that these institutions sort of naively or without historical evidence having yet accumulated thought that these theories would work. Other analysts argue that the intention was never to really help nations develop. I don't think it matters so much what their early intentions were. I think that what matters is what they are doing and their insistence on continuing to do it regardless of the devastating effects, which we're going to get into in a bit. So a little bit of history of what actually happened. In the 1970s, OPEC was making huge oil profits, which got deposited to private banks all over the world. Banks, being banks, wanted to make money on the money, so they wanted to loan it out and get interests. But we were talking about so much money that nobody wanted it. They didn't even know where to loan it. And so the private banks came up with the idea of loaning the money to third world countries. Now, at the time, countries were not thought to be entities which could default. And modernization theory was popular at this time. And so perhaps the bankers believed, in fact, oh, well, this money will help with economic development. And then, of course, countries being countries will be able to pay it back. They're going to grow. Their economies will develop. And then they'll pay, pay it back. So huge amounts were loaned out at very low interest and virtually no oversight over what the money would be used for. The banks assumed that it would be used to develop the economy. And again, I'm sure there's a more suspicious interpretation of what the banks expected to happen. Again, I don't know how much it matters. But feel free to be suspicious about that. I, I encourage it. I just don't think we need to debate it for a lot of time. Much of the money, in fact, was given to non-democratically elected regimes and even to dictators. A lot of it ended up being spent on military to repress resistance movements in these countries. A good amount of it was spent on consumption, personal consumption of these elites, or put into foreign bank accounts. And some of it was spent on what are called symbols of development, like one skyscraper or an elegant airport or a fancy highway that went a short distance, perhaps from the new airport to the presidential palace. Very little of this money was spent on infrastructure or any kind of economic development that would build the country in the long term or benefit the poor. In the 1980s, interest rates skyrocket, and at the same time, export earnings in major commodities from the third world that the third world countries depend on for their foreign exchange earnings declined. And so this combination of interest going up and export earnings decreasing meant that the loans couldn't be paid. And at this point, the International Monetary Fund steps in to buy out the loans from the private banks. So what is really the role of the IMF? Is the IMF worried about the country in default or potential default? Or is the IMF worried about what it turns out they're worried about, which is the health of major private banks? And what an IMF bailout is, was then, and continues to be, an IMF bailout is a bailout of international capital. It is a bailout of the banks. They don't even bail out national domestic banks in countries in crisis. They bail out the international investors. So the IMF at this point becomes the loan holder for the third world debt. And at this point, they say, well, we'll roll over your loan. It's a bit like taking a second mortgage. 
But we want to make sure you can pay, so we're going to help make sure that you're running your economy in a good way. We're going to give you advice. So this advice takes the form of structural adjustment programs, also sometimes known as structural adjustment conditionalities. What structural adjustment programs basically do is liquidate the economy. This means that any natural resources, like forests, should be sold off. This means that money should not be spent on any kind of social services, which includes things like government inspections and enforcement. So massive layoffs, usually of civil sector workers. And you know, it's really interesting because a lot of the times, like nice people like us in the global north, think that oh, so sad that third world nations can't be like us and have things like battered women's shelters and at-risk youth prevention programs and things. But these are the first kinds of things to be cut under structural adjustment programs. But again, what's really Important to understand is that these countries had made choices to create exactly those sorts of things, and those are what they're being forced to cut by agencies like the IMF and the World Bank that claim to be about poverty alleviation and increasing the welfare of third world people. The liquidation includes the sale of any government-run enterprises, like transportation systems, like water systems, which are recommended to be sold off to the highest international bidder. These sales of government-owned services and enterprises is called privatization. In many post-colonial nations, the telephone, electric systems, other utilities were owned by the government, and the revenues from those, which was part of keeping costs down, but also meant that the revenues from these things went back to the government. Structural adjustment programs also include layoffs, wage cuts. Implementation of user fees for basic services like health and education, and it's so important to understand that even what seems to us to be a tiny user fee, like forty cents, can spell the difference between some healthcare and no healthcare. The imposition of tiny user fees mandated under structural adjustment programs in education have the result of very, very quickly all of the girl children being pulled out of school. Those are the kinds of choices that people make when faced with what seem to be very tiny user fees,、um, but which aren't tiny to them. Structural adjustment programs include raising taxes, cutting or freezing wages, even repressing labor organizing, cutting food subsidies to the poor, and another one that's kind of a difficult one to understand is devaluing the currency. And this is one of those economic concepts that used to make my eyes glaze over, but it's one that we need to understand. Currency devaluations make a nation's exports cheaper on the global market, which is called making their exports more competitive. It also makes a nation's labor cheaper for foreign companies that want to come in and set up sweatshops. However. Currency devaluations make any imported items more expensive for consumers, and since these economies are in a state of what is called distorted development, where their people they're often dependent on imports for basic goods that the poor consume, a currency devaluation has a very fast and devastating impact on the cost of living for just basic goods for the poor. One of the things that sometimes we forget, coming from the global north, is that you can't pay your international debt with 
local currencies. And part of why these structural adjustment programs do what they do, specifically the kinds of policies that they do, is that they're orienting this whole economy instead of being oriented to produce what's needed for the people in the country, the whole economy is being oriented to earning foreign exchange, meaning first world currency, in which to pay not just any foreign exchange, but a first world currency with which to pay the loans. And so that is a further and massive distortion of how a whole economy is going to be operating. And many of the decisions made to increase foreign exchange earnings are not going to have a beneficial impact on local producers um, and, and the, the meeting of local needs. So again, when we think about like what is a healthy economy, most of us would probably think about that a healthy economy is one in which people aren't hungry, people have access to what they need, people are able to have some choices in their occupations, people have autonomy, people have control over what they want to consume, they can consume culturally, traditionally appropriate foods and goods. And that's not the definition of a healthy economy from the point of view of the World Bank and the IMF. From their point of view, a healthy economy is one which is earning a lot of foreign exchange. And what those policies that are going to produce that often work against people's needs. The leading edge of structural adjustment programs right now, although, of course, they're always renaming them, that's sort of a sign of victory for us, though, when they have to rename their programs, because <laughs> it means we've criticized them effectively. The leading edge of structural adjustment programs these days is water privatization, which has an incredibly dangerous impact on the poor who can't afford to pay for water. It is a basic need. And many post-colonial countries had good laws ensuring access to basic services like water. And they're being forced by the World Bank and the IMF to instead allow their water systems to be owned by foreign corporations like the Bechtel Corporation from San Francisco, who are going to marketize the water. And what does marketize mean? It means sell it to the people who will pay the most. This will never be the poor. The people who are in the most need do not have demand in the market. Need is not demand in the market. Need is only demand in the market if you have need and money. So privatized resources, anything, water, electricity, food, is going to go to the people willing to pay the most. So, for example, most of the meat grown in southern Africa goes to European dogs because European dog owners are able to pay more for meat than Africans are able to pay. So, you know, that's what a market-based solution does. And we need to understand that regardless of the amount of poverty alleviation rhetoric that these organizations use, these are the policies that they pursue. So it doesn't really matter what's on the plaque outside their building. We need to look at what are the policies and what are the impacts on the poor and increasingly on the middle class. So the results are just a few devastating statistics about these policies. World Bank economists document an inverse relationship between structural adjustment program implementation and growth. So the very thing, the linchpin of their promise, which is that their policies will lead to growth, which will bring everything else, even if we don't believe that, 
even their own theory is undermined by structural adjustment program implementation. In other words, the IMF and the international investment bankers, after going in and creating a giant debt bubble that they knew these third world economies could not ever hope to repay, and after having watched the third world countries go into bankruptcy and essentially receivership, are able to become the de facto rulers of the nation by implementing any policies that they see fit in order to pay back the bankers. This is exactly what is happening right now with the so-called bailout, which is only a bailout of Wall Street and which has so far cost $8.5 trillion of money that has been pumped in by the Federal Reserve and the United States Treasury. And by their own admission, these structural adjustment policies, the likes of which we are just beginning to see and are about to see implemented in the first world, do not work. And unlike Amory Starr, we don't have to be subtle or coy about being suspicious about the true intentions of the IMF in creating this debt bubble, popping it, and then implementing strategies that they know will only further enslave and indebt these countries. It is a planned bankruptcy, a planned looting of the economy for the private commercial interests to then go in and buy up the entire infrastructure of the nation at pennies on the dollar. Again, this has been well documented, and listeners are advised to go back to episode 37 of the Corbett Report for more information on how that scam works, including the links from that episode to the reporting by Greg Pallast of Joseph Sticklitz, the former head of the World Bank, who released and leaked documents showing that the IMF knew the expected results of their structural adjustment policies would be rioting. Again, this is an incredibly important point to be understood, and at this historical juncture, standing at the very brink of the economic abyss as we are, it is our duty to become informed about what has happened and what is continuing to happen, and who is really behind this. Again, listeners are encouraged to go and listen to that Professor Amory Starr speech in its entirety, as later in the speech she gets into the World Trade Organization, which she calls quite rightfully, I think, a type of constitution for a new world government founded on economics, a corporatocracy run by the technocrats for the pleasure of the banking elite that is explicitly and inherently anti-democratic, exactly as what is called for in that Financial Times article from today's Real News. She also even mentions Codex Alimentarius, which listeners to the Corbett Report will remember from a previous episode of this podcast. Switching gears, let's take a look at a different era, a different aspect of history, but something that also ties into our current time, which is the war in Vietnam. One of the stories that helped to forge public opinion against the war in Vietnam was a story reported by a then-unknown reporter Seymour Hirsch, who reported on the My Lai Massacre, the mass murder of hundreds of unarmed citizens in South Vietnam at the hands of the U.S. Army on March 16, 1968. Seymour Hirsch delivered the Mario Savio Memorial Lecture in 2007, a lecture devoted, to, of course, to the memory of Mario Savio, the spokesman for Berkeley's free speech movement of 1964, whose most famous speech was played in part at the beginning of episode 15 of this podcast. 
Seymour Hirsch is, of course, a veteran investigative journalist and has been known for breaking many stories since that first initial scoop of the My Lai Massacre, which, of course, made his name in journalism. Hirsch has a unique perspective on history, having been involved in writing some of the history, that is, some of the most important stories in American politics of the last 30 years. And, of course, the listeners who have not done so would be highly advised to check out some of his reporting from the past and some of the reports which have been mentioned in the Corbett Report in previous episodes. But right now, let's listen to an excerpt from this Mario Savio Memorial Lecture, in which Seymour Hirsch connects the My Lai Massacre to the Abu Ghraib scandal, which erupted in Iraq in 2003. You know, when I did the My Lai stuff, the kids in, in My Lai, for those of you who don't know, it was one day in... There was a company named Charlie Company. And what I'm telling you, it sounds fanciful, but it was totally real. They went to Vietnam in late 1967. And in the next three months, they watched, they marched around in, in, in one of the combat areas in the north, northern part of Vietnam, close to I Corps. They marched around and they never saw the enemy, but they lost maybe 20 guys out of 100 through snipers, um, through booby traps. And they were more and more angry, and they would begin to act out a little more with locals, and their officers weren't stopping them. And finally, one day in March of 1968, at the height of the war, uh, 500,000 Americans, then they were told, tomorrow you're going to fight. You're going to meet the, uh, the North Vietnamese battalion. We have intelligence that there's going to be 500 North Vietnamese soldiers there. Get ready. So the kids did what that army did. You know, they toked it up, and the officers and enlisted men drank it up. And 4:30, they jumped on choppers, and they went to die and be kill and be killed. Walked into the village. I don't think it was called Milai. I don't think they called it Milai. They they call it Pinkville because it was pink for communists on the maps. They walked into this village. They flew. They dropped off outside the village, and they stormed in. 550 some odd is the number, best number. Women, men, women, children, old women, old men, making breakfast. And over the next three, four hours. They put them in the three ditches and they shot them, executed them. And one of the kids that did a lot of shooting, at this point McNamara had instituted a program called Project 100,000, which was lowering the standards. Basically, so as a lot of people, um, uh, particularly um, African-American political leaders said then, it was just he simply wanted to get cannon fodder. He wanted to get more black people into the war. And um, um, whatever. Um, Paul Meadlow was farm kid, white farm kid from a, a southern a place called New Goshen, Indiana, which is south of Terre Haute, which is south of Indianapolis, which is south of Chicago. And he's there, and Milo says, shoot him, and he puts clip after clip into his bullet and sprays and sprays, one clip after another clip. Some of the African-American and Hispanic kids shot. Nobody would dare not shoot, but shot up, just shot in the air. But they didn't, they didn't, they just said, hey. But a lot of kids shot. And there was a moment in this when, um, uh, after it was over, uh, some, there was a noise and some mother at the bottom of the pit, one of the pits, and there are photographs of it, Life magazine eventually got some, one of the kids took pictures and they published, after my stories, they, they made them public. And um, a kid crawled up through the mess, a little boy, about three, full of blood, began screaming, of course hysterical, began running across the field or whatever there is, the open area. And Callie said to Milo, he'd been his most dependable shooter, he said, plug him. And Milo couldn't do it. So Callie took his carbine. Officers then had smaller rifles, took a carbine and ran up behind the kid. Everybody 
I think I talked to 55 of the kids who were there over the next year. Shot them in the back of the head. The next morning, Meadle early, while beginning the day, walking the first patrol, stepped on a mine and blew off his foot right below the knee and began to scream, God has punished me, Callie, and he's going to punish you. God has punished me, and he's going to punish you. The kids couldn't wait, the other kids. It was an oath. The kids couldn't wait for the chopper to come and take him away, and finally it did, and they medevaced him out. And repressed knowledge, I guess. I'd been doing the story for a couple of weeks, talking to kids, going one-to-one when I first picked up on it a year and a half later. As a freelance writer working for an anti-war dispatch news service, little anti-war news service, it's to the credit of the press that I could take it into the straight press, and it were mainstream press, we call it now, and it got out. Um, but one of the kids finally told me about Milo, and I, and I called up and found him in the phone book and, and, and talked to his mother that day. It was an evening. And she said, I don't know. And this twang, she said, I don't know if he'll talk to you. And she said, I don't know. I said, I'm coming. So I went down. I flew down. to in the, I drove down. And there was no, uh, what are those computer searches called? You know, what do they call those searches? MapQuest. I mean, believe me, finding this farm. Yeah, it was on a small farm outside this town, and I finally found it, the farm. And this is not, um, I always think of the Norman Rockwell. Remember that guy who used to paint these beautific photographs of paintings of Saturday Evening Post stuff of farm life? This was really down and grungy. This was a chicken farm with uh, no care. Even the chickens looked pretty sad. The, the shack was sad. And I pull in, and she comes out. She's 50, maybe. There's no man around. And she's 50, the mother, and, and, and she looks... She looks 70, weathered, and hard scrabble. And I go up and I introduce myself, and I say, I want to talk to him. She says, he's in there, I don't know if I'll talk to you. And I said, well, I'll try. And she said, well, go ahead. And then, you can't invent this. She says, I gave them a good boy, and they sent me back a murderer. Okay, flash forward 35 years. I'm doing up a grade, and I did three stories. It was sort of the same sort of stuff. The press sort of just watched and let me do it. And, you know, fame, fortune, glory, I got no complaints. Um, but, so I'm doing these stories, and one of the things I do with the New Yorker, which I do with Happy because they're, they're, they're fine to me, they let me, you know, they're great, um, is um, when I have stories that are hot and I'm on television, I do it. I go on, talk, to, talk about it, pimp it out, or whatever I call it. And so I'm on some NPR show. Uh, would be the NPR of today, would be the NPR of 20 years ago, but we've got Amy Goodman, so it's okay. Um, no, she's... Let me tell you something. She's a professional and she works it. She works it. I know she works it. She doesn't. It's not by accident. She works. She's a, a very hardworking person and uh, doesn't talk to anybody unless she learns as much as she can about them, um, which is something, you know. A- anyway, um, so I'm on this talk show and I get this call and some NPR show and some woman says, I've got a child that went there and she's in trouble. What do I do? And so I, 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 I say on air, I say, get a pencil. You got it? She says, yeah. And I say, 202, I give my number real quick because I don't want anybody else to call me. And the station got a lot of calls. People said, what's that number? And two days later, she called. I didn't think she would have when she didn't call the first day. This was back in Washington. The show was in New York. And she calls, and, and I go see her. She's a Catholic family from um, lower middle class family north in, in, in that area. The, re, re, you know, the child was in the 372nd unit. And what happened is, as I didn't know, that is, if you remember this, the sequence, war starts in 03. Uh, in September, there's troubles. They start jacking up the intelligence. They wanted to get more out of the people. That's why they start the funding games, allegedly to get better intelligence. Um, and 
the, the complaints made in January and May, the story of 04, it's broken. In March of 04, that unit's sent home. Uh, a complete computer, the, the Army officials have gone through everybody's computer, pulled out everything. You know there's litigation going on about the photographs. And in any case, this ACLU wants them, and they've won court decisions, but the Army's fighting bitterly to keep all of the photographs from that, from that prison, from being public, and you'll hear why in a minute. And so I go see her, and here's the story. The kid sent back in March, different kid, disconsolable, irritable, uh, absolutely incapable of dealing with anybody in the family, has a marriage she breaks up, has a family she breaks away from, moves to another town, night job, the whole cliché, Nobody can figure out what's going on. The family's half hysterical. Abu Ghraib comes out about ten weeks later, and the mother knocks on the door one night at the daughter's apartment, or if she is a daughter. I'm fudging a little bit, but that's okay. The, the story's within parameters to the word. And, and um, shows her a newspaper. It's all over the newspaper. She slams the door. And at that point, the mother, as she's telling me this story in this, uh, in, you know, a Hooters or something like that in this town, and... As she's telling me, and so at that point she said, I went and I remembered I had given my daughter a, a, a portable computer to take to the war because it turns out um, a lot of families did it because they had DVD players that they can watch movies, which makes a lot of sense. And we're not talking about somebody who's aware of the unconscious or Freud. Um, she thinks she was absolutely no connection between Abu Ghraib and her concerns and getting that computer, she said. She just wanted to get a second computer and she remembered it. And... She started going through it, deleting files, and there's a file called Iraq, and she hit the button. Out came a hundred photographs, digital, of something no mother should ever see. Do you remember the New Yorker picture, the iconic picture of the, uh, the, the prisoner like this, naked, two dogs, one at each side. He's got to keep his hands behind his head. He can't even use his hands to protect the private parts. He's there with two dogs snarling. Well, in the sequence, of course, and by the way, to the ever, everlasting credit of the New Yorker and the sensibilities of the editors there, particularly um, the main editor, Dave Remnick, enough is enough for the Arab world. We're just going to show this one picture. The message is there. It's not about sensationalism or not wanting to do it. It's about how much do you disrespect the Arabs that we're fighting. And it was a real big, tough issue. In the photographs, of course, the dogs attacks the boy, young soldier or the young prisoner. Blood all over. He attacks him in a sensitive part. And the worst thing is, in the end, you can see a hand in the last picture, sewing up a big gash, blood all over the place. I mean, it was it's something no mother should see. So after some back and forth, there's all sorts of all sorts of issues. Obviously, you know, as a journalist, my God, crisis intervention is needed. What do you do as a as a human being? You know, she really needs this daughter's in trouble. I mean, serious trouble. There's also you've got to get an okay to run these pictures. They're hers. So we go through a lot of hurdles, and pictures run. I don't know and crisis and there is something, there was some intervention. Um, the, the reason somebody worries about it is, is just um, uh, is the obvious reason. I don't want to be in a position of anybody thinking that somehow I induced this. You know what I mean by getting treatment. I, I have a lot of worries that I have to really be very, very careful. Um, um, and yet I, you have to do something. You have to get her to get that child into some care, some immediate crisis care, which I, I don't know that it happened, but I, I, I found ways to get that message to her through other people's in the family. Other family. Anyway, so three or four months later, she calls back, and she says, well, there's something I meant to tell you about it, about, uh, that I couldn't tell you then. She said, the child was quite beautiful, came back, still beautiful. But in those months after she came back, and particularly after Abu Ghraib became known, 
she would go out every weekend and get large tattoos, most of them very dark black, blue tattoos all over her body. And eventually, she filled up all of the space, just about all of the space. I can't, I don't know about the face. All of the space, she said body, with tattoos. And the mother said to me, it's as if she wanted to change her skin. The dehumanization of the soldiers, implicit in both the Milai massacre and the Abu Ghraib scandal, is something that we will have to deal with as a society. Not just Americans, but Canadians, Australians, British, everyone involved in the various theaters of the new global war on terror will have to deal with soldiers who are being indoctrinated into the belief that torture is acceptable and that it is okay to dehumanize the enemy. Throughout history, societies that engage in these types of practices inevitably fall under their own weight as their citizenry turn against each other and the basic bonds of human society break down. Of course, this is everything that the Corbett Report podcast is opposed to. And once again, the question is raised, if that is what we are opposed to, then what do we stand for? Well, that has been articulated by another spokesman of that Vietnam War era. In fact, one of the greatest spokesmen of the 1960s, a very violent and turbulent time, which was punctuated by speeches and movements which promised great hope for an incredible future, not the type of change you can believe in being marketed by the Obamazoids like one would market a tube of toothpaste, but the real change that fundamentally affected society. I refer, of course, to the civil rights movement and one of its most articulate spokesmen, Martin Luther King Jr. On April 4th, 1967, Dr. Martin Luther King delivered a speech at Riverside Church in New York City entitled, Why I Oppose the War in Vietnam, A Time to Break Silence. Time magazine called the speech demographic slander that sounded like a script for Radio Hanoi, and the Washington Post declared that King had diminished his usefulness to his cause, his country, his people. Well, let's listen to this excerpt from Dr. King's speech in which he talks about the opposite of a culture based on war profiteering. This is something that we can put forward as a positive idea for the change that we want to see in the world, as opposed to those who would try to teach us that torture and dehumanization of the enemy is the proper way to proceed with society. Let's listen to this clip from Dr. King's 1967 speech. I'm convinced that if we are to get on the right side of the world revolution, we as a nation must undergo a radical revolution of values. We must rapidly begin to shift from a thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society when machines and computers, profit motives and property rights are considered more important than people. The giant triplets of racism militarism and economic exploitation are incapable of being conquered. A true revolution of values will soon cause us to question the fairness and justice of many of our present policies. On the one hand, we are called to play the Good Samaritan on life's roadside, but that will be only an initial act one day we must come to see that the whole 
Jericho Road must be changed so that men and women will not be constantly beaten and robbed as they make their journey on life's highway. True compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. A true revolution of values will soon look uneasily on the glaring contrast of poverty and wealth with righteous indignation. It will look across the seas and see individual capitalists of the West invest in huge sums of money in Asia, Africa, and South America only to take the profits out with no concern for the social betterment of the countries and say this is not just. It will look at our alliance with the landed gentry of Latin America and say this is not just. The Western arrogance of feeling that it has everything to teach others and nothing to learn from them is not just. A true revolution of values will lay hands on the world order and say of war, this way of settling differences is not just. This business of burning human beings with napalm, of filling our nation's homes and with orphans and widows, of injecting poisonous drugs of hate into the veins of peoples normally humane, of sending men home from dark and bloody battlefields, physically handicapped and psychologically deranged, cannot be reconciled with wisdom, justice, and love. A nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death. Oh, my friends, if that is any one thing that we must see today, is that these are revolutionary times. All over the globe, men are revolting against old systems of exploitation and oppression. And out of the wounds of a frail world, new systems of justice and equality are being born. The shirtless and barefoot people of the land are rising up as never before. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And they are saying unconsciously, as we say in one of our freedom songs, ain't going to let nobody turn me around. And it is a sad fact that because of comfort, complacency, a morbid fear of communism, our proneness to adjust to injustice. The Western nations that initiated so much of the revolutionary spirit of the modern world have now become the arch anti-revolutionaries. This has driven many to feel that only Marxism has a revolutionary spirit. Therefore, communism is a judgment against our failure to make democracy real and follow through on the revolutions that we initiated. And our only hope today lies in our ability to recapture the revolutionary spirit and go out into a sometimes hostile world declaring eternal hostility to poverty, racism, and militarism. With this powerful commitment, 
We shall boldly challenge the status quo. We shall boldly challenge unjust mores and thereby speed up the day when every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The rough places shall be made plain and the crooked places straight. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. A genuine revolution of values means in the final analysis that our loyalties must become ecumenical rather than sectional. Every nation must now develop an overriding loyalty to mankind as a whole in order to preserve the best in their individual societies. This calls for a worldwide fellowship that lifts the neighborly concern beyond one's tribe, race, class, and nation is in reality a call for an all-embracing, unconditional love for all men. This oft-misunderstood and misinterpreted concept so readily dismissed by the Nietzsche's of the world as a weak and cowardly force has now become an absolute necessity for the survival of mankind. And when I speak of love, I'm not speaking of some sentimental and weak response. I'm speaking of that force which all of the great religions have seen as the supreme unifying principle of life. Love is somehow the key that unlocks the door which leads to ultimate reality. This Hindu, Muslim, Christian, Jewish, Buddhist belief about ultimate reality is beautifully summed up in the first epistle of John. Let us love one another, for God is love, and every one that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. Let me say finally that I oppose the war in Vietnam because I love America. I speak out against this war, not in anger, but with anxiety and sorrow in my heart, and above all with a passionate desire to see our beloved country stand as the moral example of the world. I speak out against this war because I'm disappointed with America. And there can be no great disappointment where there is no great love. I'm disappointed with our failure to deal positively and forthrightly with the triple evils of racism economic exploitation and militarism. We are presently moving down a dead-end road that can lead to national disaster. Make no mistake, we are living in world historical times, and we are history's actors, but we stand on the shoulders of the historical giants that have preceded us and that connect us to the common ancestry of humanity. What Dr. King calls a revolution of values, I call a restoration of values, going back to that which was once known and once understood implicitly by our ancestors. 
perhaps no better example of that knowledge, that deep understanding of the true meanings of liberty and freedom that was once so well understood, comes from perhaps the most important political document in the history of the human civilization. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes, and accordingly all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations, pursuing invariably the same object, evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty, to throw off such government and to provide new gods for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. The history of the present King of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having indirect object, the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. He has refused his assent to laws, the most wholesome and necessary for the public good. He has forbidden his governors to pass laws of immediate and pressing importance unless suspended in their operation till his assent should be obtained. And when so suspended, he has utterly neglected to attend to them. He has refused to pass other laws for the accommodation of large districts of people unless those people would relinquish their right of representation in the legislature, a right inestimable to them and formidable to tyrants only. He has called together legislative bodies at places unusual, uncomfortable, and distant from the depository of their public records for the sole purpose of fatiguing them into compliance with his measures. He has dissolved representative houses repeatedly for opposing with manly firmness 
his invasions on the rights of the people. He has refused for a long time, after such dissolutions, to cause others to be elected, whereby the legislative power, incapable of annihilation, have returned to the people at large for their exercise, the state remaining in the meantime exposed to all the dangers of invasion from without and convulsions within. He has endeavored to prevent the population of these states for that purpose obstructing the laws for naturalization of foreigners, refusing to pass others to encourage their migrations hither, and raising the conditions of new appropriations of land. He has obstructed the administration of justice by refusing his assent to laws for establishing judiciary powers. He has made judges dependent on his will alone for the tenure of their offices and the amounts and payment of their salaries. He has erected a multitude of new offices and sent hither swarms of offices to harass our people and eat out their substance. He has kept among us in times of peace standing armies without the consent of our legislatures. He has affected to render the military independent of and superior to the civil power. He has combined with others to subject us to a jurisdiction foreign to our Constitution and unacknowledged by our laws, giving his assent to their acts of pretended legislation for quartering large bodies of armed troops among us, for protecting them by a mock trial from punishment for any murders which they should commit on the inhabitants of these states, for cutting off our trade with all parts of the world, for imposing taxes on us without our consent, for depriving us in many cases of the benefits of trial by jury, for transporting us beyond seas to be tried for pretended offenses, for abolishing the free system of English laws in a neighboring province, establishing therein an arbitrary government and enlarging its boundaries so as to render it at once an example and fit instrument for introducing the same absolute rule into these colonies, for taking away our charters, abolishing our most valuable laws, and altering fundamentally the forms of our government, for suspending our own legislatures and declaring themselves invested with power to legislate for us in all cases whatsoever. He has abdicated government here by declaring us out of his protection and waging war against us. He has plundered our seas, ravaged our coasts, burned our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. He is at this time transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries to complete the work of death, desolation, and tyranny already begun with circumstances of cruelty and perfidy, scarcely paralleled in the most barbarous ages and totally unworthy the head of a civilized nation. He has constrained our fellow citizens, taken captive on the high seas, to bear arms against their country, to become the executioners of their friends and brethren, 
or to fall themselves by their hands. He has excited domestic insurrections among us and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers the merciless Indian savages whose known rule of warfare is an indistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. A prince whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. Nor have we been wanting in attentions to our British brethren. We have warned them from time to time of attempts by their legislature to extend an unwarrantable jurisdiction over us. We have reminded them of the circumstances of our immigration and settlement here. We have appealed to their native justice and magnanimity, and we have conjured them by the ties of our common kindred to disavow these usurpations, which would inevitably interrupt our connections and correspondence. They, too, have been deaf to the voice of justice and of consanguinity. We must, therefore, acquiesce in the necessity which denounces our separation and hold them as we hold the rest of mankind, enemies in war, in peace, friends. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, in general Congress assembled, appealing to the supreme judge of the world, for the rectitude of our intentions, do in the name and by authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are, and of a right ought to be, free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British Crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved, and that as free and independent states, they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. This history is part of the shared common history of free humanity. It flows through us, it is a part of us, and the things which were referred to in that founding document of the United States are equally applicable to today's international situation. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Let us then remember the past. Get involved, get active, and do your own research. Thank you for joining me today. I am James Corbett, asking you to join me once again next week for another edition of The Corbett Report. I may not be you, and you not me. I 
But between us, there are certain similarities Like I believe in love And the devil will come Look for us when we wrong someone Freedom is ours to hold It's just a struggle in your mind To keep your soul Keep your soul And it's so Yes, it's so It's just a struggle in your mind To keep your soul and Catholics will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. <laughs> 